Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, October 20th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. Rolling Up Your Sleeves by Will Matsuka. Bridging the Divide by Chad Robert Peterson. The Many Faces of Cree Bagheera by Carter Ferryman. Some Candy Talking by Christopher Piercy. Fast Times by Nick Hutchinson. Once in a Lifetime by Tony Tresca. Southern Gothic by Michael J. Casey. Rolling Up Your Sleeves From hobbyist to pro, Meggy Wilm teaches the ancient art of stained glass at her newly opened studio on Pearl Street. By Will Matsuka Stained glass is a thousand-year-old art form with origins tracing to the ancient Romans and Egyptians. Its light-transforming qualities have been used in architectural design since the 10th century, often to depict stories or elicit awe in cathedrals and churches. And while you may never be able to replicate the intricate stained glass works of the rose windows in the Chartres Cathedral in France, Maggie Wilm wants to help you become your own kind of stained glass artist. It's one of those things where you have a lot of simple tasks that all add up, Wilm says, from the recently opened storefront of Colorado Glassworks on Pearl Street in Boulder. Maybe there's a little artistic talent, but a lot of it is just rolling up your sleeves and doing hard work and spending hours making pieces. Growing up in Littleton, Wilm remembers being enamored by the beauty of stained glass at a young age. There's something about it that just makes you stop for one extra second, she says. After studying medicine in college, she decided it wouldn't be her career. She took a stained glass class and hasn't looked back since. She started making pieces at home using the copper foil method, sitting cross-legged on her hardwood floor, teaching herself the craft. Even then, about five years ago, Wilm did everything except make the glass itself drawing designs, picking colors, cutting, grinding, and sanding glass into perfectly form-fitting shapes, then finally soldering lead and tin to 600 degrees Fahrenheit to her copper foil wrapped glass cuttings to complete each piece. Wilm had found a new hobby, one she was really good at. Her nature-inspired pieces were eye-catching, multicolored monstera leaves, intricately layered bouquets with contrasting flowers and grasses, and ravens with shimmering wings. Wilm says she draws at a seventh grade level, but it translates enough into creating stained glass. Secretly, I'm not that good of an artist, she demurs. 
friends and family were her first customers. Next, she turned to Instagram to expand her reach. She says most of her pieces, priced at hundreds of dollars, would sell within 10 minutes of posting them. Now, Wilm has 120,000 followers on Instagram and customers around the world. One of her current projects is a 400-piece pastel-themed peacock for a customer in Canada. This is the most complex piece Wilm has attempted, and although admitting she may have gone overboard with the design, she's proud of the progress she's made. How can you simplify a peacock? If you simplify a peacock, it loses its beauty, she says. On August 2nd, Wilm officially opened the doors of Colorado Glassworks in a small space on the east end of Pearl Street. Passers-by often pause to look at her completed pieces through large street-facing windows, or to watch Wilm and her employees at work cutting, soldering, or grinding. Now, customers can buy from her selection online or from her studio. Wilm still finds it special that people are interested in buying her art. I think there's just something in my head saying only my mother could truly love my art. Tyler Kimball, owner of Monarch Glass Studio in Kansas City, Missouri, is on the board of the Stained Glass Association of America, which recently gave Wilm a professional membership, something Kimball says is not given to many people. I've never met anybody like her, he says. I think a lot of people think they are like her, where they set out to do something and they have visions of grandeur to do it. But Maggie actually follows through in a big way. It's not just her craft that impresses Kimball. It's the dedication, hard work, and creativity that she uses to achieve her goals. Kimball has partnered with Wilm to sell mouth-blown sheet glass, a technique Kimball specializes in. It's one of the rarest types of stained glass, and most sought after by top-tier artists. It is unique, beautiful, and difficult to create. Only two shops create mouth-blown sheet glass in the U.S. Mouth-blown sheet glass has something in it that nothing else has. It's got life, says Kimball, who has been running Monarch Glass Studio for seven years. Now from her studio on Pearl, Wilm is the sole distributor of Kimball's mouth-blown sheet glass in North America. She uses the valuable glass in her own pieces, but also wants to see others buy the sheet glass and learn the craft. Wilm offers stained glass classes for beginners, organizes open studio time for those who need space to work on glass projects, and donates 10% of her profits to her favorite environmental charities. I'm meant to create stained glass. I love it. And I know I'm meant to do big things with it, she says. From sitting cross-legged on her living floor to owning her own studio, Wilm will continue carving out space in the Boulder community for stained glass and, as she says, sometimes make pretty cool stuff. Bridging the Divide Bipartisan legislation seeks to finally fill the gaps in the Continental Divide Trail by Chad Peterson. Halfway through the Continental Divide Trail, having traveled over 1,500 miles through the plains of New Mexico and the rugged mountains of Colorado, tired with heavy legs, 
Hikers come to the 15 arduous miles of muddy paths between Jackson and Grand Counties. The trail has temporarily ended, and at this point, hikers are forced to travel next to a high-speed roadway until they are able to join the established trail again in the Medicine Bow Route National Forest. There are many gaps like this throughout the 3,100-mile CDT. In total, there are around 160 miles of missing trail due to gaps in public land. In August 2021, Representative Joe Neguse introduced the Continental Divide Trail Completion Act. After passing the House this July, the legislation has made its way to the Senate, where legislators from across the aisle Steve Daines, Republican Montana, and Martin Heinrich, Democrat New Mexico, have co-sponsored the bill this month. If it passes, the legislation will direct the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior to prioritize completion of the CDT by the trail's 50th anniversary in 2028. Established in 1978 as an addition to the National Trail System Act, the CDT begins in the high desert of southern New Mexico and winds its way through the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and Wyoming, snaking to its terminus in Glacier National Park in Montana. The trail is considered the most difficult of the triple crown of hiking, the CDT, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. Despite increased traffic on the trail over the past decade, CDT hikers often don't cross paths with another hiker for multiple days. Remoteness defines the sentiment of the trail. The CDT is home to beautiful landscapes and world-class recreational opportunities, serving as both a refuge for communities to experience being outdoors and an economic driver for the mountain towns and businesses that rely on visitors for their livelihoods, Rep. Nagu said in a press statement. By passing the Continental Divide Trail Completion Act, we ensure that more people have access to these recreational benefits, and we invest in Colorado's outdoor recreation economy. In Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, the outdoor industry makes up a major portion of state gross domestic product, GDP, with each being ranked in the top 10 for percentage of the economy supported by outdoor recreation. Montana ranks number one, with Wyoming being fourth and Idaho eighth in the country. Colorado lies just outside the top 10 at 11th. Over the span of the trail, there are now 20 official gateway communities, including Grand Lake, Colorado, that have partnered with the nonprofit organization Continental Divide Trail Coalition, CDTC. These communities are committed to the completion and protection of the Continental Divide Trail and act as pleasant stops for those hiking the trail. In a small survey of businesses in gateway communities, 78% of respondents said they believe that protecting the trail is important to the well-being of businesses, jobs, and the community's economy. 80% of respondents said they have seen growth in their business due to the use of the CDT since 2014. We've seen a huge growth in first-time users of the trail, 
and also people just getting out from their communities and connecting with the trail, explains Luke Fisher, Trail Policy Program Manager for CDTC. It's not only important for the community's business and economy, but it's also important for a lot of these community cultures. They have a huge connection with the divide in this landscape. Completion of the trail means not only more visitors and more money being invested into local economies, but will also protect other forms of outdoor recreation culture, Fisher says. A lot of hunters and fishers use the trail to go get food and for cultural practices. Fisher explains that the trail was only around 65% complete in the year 2009, and that over the past 13 years it has developed by an additional 30%. The CDTC works with gateway communities to designate the best areas for the trail to follow. Just 10 years ago, only 20 to 25 hikers would attempt the trail from start to finish. Now, anywhere from 400 to 600 hikers attempt the thru-hike each year. In 2018, Ali Gaman, who has also hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and the Appalachian Trail, completed the CDT in a little over four months with her husband. Gaman, who also works for CDTC, explains that one of the major goals for the CDTC is to finish the trail gap that exists at Muddy Pass near Steamboat Springs. We were doing it in the rain because we were being very stubborn about it, which was not the right judgment call in hindsight, she says. You're walking on the edge of a road, and there are a couple places where the highway gets quite tight as well. Despite inconveniences like Muddy Pass, Gaiman highlights the beauty and remoteness that set the CDT apart from other national scenic trails. Because there are areas in which people take alternate routes or explore different areas, you end up with places where you might not see another trail traveler for days on end, she says. At one point in Montana, I think we went eight or nine days without seeing anyone else. Fisher of CDTC says they believe the end is finally in sight. Just in the past decade, we have almost completed 30% of the trail. I think that's a real testament to the dedication of all our land managers and volunteers, they say. As CDTC enters our second decade, that's the main part of our mission. I really think we can get it done by our 50th anniversary, but we'll see how we get that. The Many Faces of Cree Bagheera Unmasking the Percussionist Behind Local Jazz Fusion Cult Favorite Ramakandra by Carter Ferryman Cree Bagheera honed his obsession in the shadows. Music was present in his household growing up, but Bagheera's family discouraged a career path in the arts. He could be a firefighter or a lawyer, of course, but pounding snares with sticks as a full-time job seemed ridiculous. Thus, in the millennial age of computer crashing, file-sharing software like Napster and LimeWire, the budding drummer got to work behind closed doors. A drum set is a loud, intricate, beautiful machine, but to Bagheera's family, it was just loud. 
So he improvised, concocting a MacGyver-like drum kit out of kick pedals on pillows and mouse pads on snares. He'd tap away furiously on his Frankenstein's trap set under the low, buzzing audio of digital music players and video games his friends were playing. Quietly and passionately, Bagheera grew an unconditional love for music's true backbone. One night, practicing away on pillows, dreaming of scintillating fills by dazzling American jazz drummers like Tony Williams and Elvin Jones, Bagheera's grandfather barged into his room, furious at the noise he was making. What's wrong with you? he yelled. Don't you ever stop practicing? A shaken Bagheera gave a simple reply. I just want to be great. Starbreaker Bagheera, who performs under the alias Nobody, has worked toward those ambitions of greatness through playing in Denver-based cult favorite Ramakandra, whose sound is self-described as Abstract Jazz and Zelda Starbreaks. Since the release of their sprawling and elegant self-titled debut LP in 2020, Ramakandra's place in the Denver scene has remained unique and undeniable. In the years since their formation in 2017, they've become must-see performers at local events like the Westward and Underground Music Showcases. They've also opened for powerhouses of jazz fusion, like Kamasi Washington and Sons of Kemet. Bagheera may be the rhythmic backbone of the band, but Ramakandra is a collective in the truest sense of the word. Anastasia, harpist and vocalist, lays a gentle foundation for the quartet. Clayto assists with bone-rattling bass lines. Eric Estrada grows delicate cosmic landscapes on synth, with the percussive bliss of nobody, Bagheera, flowing through the arrangements of his bandmates like water. Years of intense focus, studying rudiments, and reading books of sheet music helped Bagheera realize the role he would eventually come to play with Ramakandra, and how it fits into the grander machine. We portray ourselves as a megazord, he says, referring to the fictional robot from Power Rangers, whose strength comes from the sum of its many parts. If I were to tell you my place in that, it'd be the legs. Bagheera is often asked if Ramakandra identifies as a drum-driven band or a harp-driven band. While their music makes the case for either, he says it's more about how the instruments play off each other. I'll hear what Anastasia is doing on the harp, or what Clayto and Eric Estrada are doing, and we'll literally just try and flow with them, he says. Instead of the traditional approach where the drummer sets a beat and the others follow, Bagheera hears what his bandmates are doing and speaks back in the sonic conversation. His approach is reminiscent of the traditional Japanese martial art of Aikido. It's an ancient practice built on the grounds of using momentum and flow as an advantage, rather than going on the attack. That's why, whenever I play with others, it's hard for me to just start doing a beat, he says. In my mind, as soon as I hear a melody, I'm internally deciding how to augment it. When Bagheera perches on his drum stool and closes his eyes, landscapes from anime and video games come to life in his mind. 
There are often places he's been able to conjure as one half of Dreamcast with Estrada, a duo that makes self-proclaimed final boss music. He's imagining lush green rice terraces in rural Japan, or damp congested Tokyo streets lit brightly by neon tubes. I picture what the music would be like if I were to play that specific scene, he says. 80% of my inspiration comes from music, and 20% is visual. There are times when it's entirely visual. Bagheera will play a video game, absorb the environment, blossoming through diodes on screen, and rush to his kit, painting a world out of percussion at his fingertips. This kind of rhythmic world-building took center on stage September 26th, when Ramakandra opened for a live screening of Dune at Red Rocks. The movie is a heavy sci-fi film, and the soundscape is incredible, Bagheera says, of the otherworldly collaboration. Our music is really inspired by that genre. The Many-Faced Drummer Bagheera is perhaps most well-known for the face in front of the face. He dons intricate masks when performing, some golden gothic, others with horns and sharp fangs and many painted with intricate Japanese-inspired flourishes. But his affinity for seeking out new identities goes deeper than facial coverings. I'm hungry for every genre, he says. So, to take what I like about all types of music and apply it to Ramakandra, you'll see that our sound is inspired by so many styles. Bagheera cites the experimental electronics of Amon Tobin and Flying Lotus as inspiration as well as the textural approaches of Swiss virtuoso drummer Jojo Meyer and the soulful, sample-heavy masterpieces of the late Jay Dilla. The list of influences goes on and on. Like the wall of masks Bagheera chooses from, his source of inspiration knows no bounds. It's a testament to an artist who, years ago, under a roof of restrictions, tapped a rhythm into some household objects, and launched himself into a musical galaxy where labels and faces couldn't possibly exist, just drumsticks and a place to use them. On the Bill Spelling with Ramakandra and Body 8pm, Sunday, October 23rd, Bluebird Theatre 3317 East Colfax Ave, Denver. Some Candy Talking After changing the landscape of alternative music in the 1980s, the Jesus and Mary Chain bring their amp-melting pop tunes back to Colorado for the first time in half a decade. By Christopher Piercy. Scottish noise-saturated rock band The Jesus and Mary Chain set the London underground ablaze in the mid-80s with their confrontational, ear-splittingly loud, and often chaotic live shows. Arriving on a music scene in a state of flux, with punk rock having burned itself out, and shoegaze and Britpop still a few years from Genesis, their abrasive, industrial-coated pop gems quickly caught the attention of critics and audiences alike. The band's debut LP, 1985's Psycho Candy, would go on to become one of the cornerstones of the modern alternative rock. 
It was an instant classic of 60s girl group melodies paired with paint-peeling feedback that laid the groundwork for bands like My Bloody Valentine and much of what we know broadly as indie rock. The Jesus and Mary Chain maintained an active present up through the end of the 90s, releasing several more exceptional records and chart-cracking singles. But internal tensions led to an implosion, and they called it a day just before the arrival of the new millennium. The band returned to Coachella 2007, and with some patching up done between brothers Jim and William Reed, they have enjoyed a successful second life. With a new album on the horizon, and a past worth revisiting, the band is making its first journey back stateside since before the pandemic. Boulder Weekly spoke with singer Jim Reed ahead of their October 23rd performance at the Paramount Theater in Denver. When I first discovered Psycho Candy, I happened to be in the midst of a big Beach Boys, Velvet Underground, and Stooges obsession. I thought the sound you achieved was this perfect amalgamation of pure pop songcraft and abrasiveness. And for a young kid growing up in the middle of nowhere, it was a true revelation. Do you recall a similarly revelatory moment that made you want to create your own music? I mean, it had been kind of something we'd always wanted to do since we were kids. It's weird. There's nobody really musical in our family. But we got our record player in the early 70s, and we had no records to play on it. And a cousin lent us a bunch of Beatles albums. And that was, I guess, sort of the beginning of it. But there were many steps along the way. We got into glam rock, like Bowie, Roxy Music, and stuff like that. And then punk rock, and that was a big moment. Before, it seemed like people who made music were exotic creatures from another galaxy almost. But with punk, it seemed like, Christ, there were people like us. We can do this. And we talked about doing it for years and years and years. And then the kind of eureka moment, I suppose, was when we got the first Velvets album. A lot of punk bands talked about that record, but you really couldn't find it. It was discontinued, it was deleted. Then they reissued that record in 1980, and we bought the first album, the Banana Album. We brought it home, put it on the record player, and it was just like, fuck, this is how good it can be. And so that was the moment we knew that we had to really get our asses in gear and do an actual band and make music. This is what we wanted to do. So we did. Boulder Weekly. So is that around the time the idea came to marry the harsher noise and the more melodic sensibilities? Jim Reed. Yeah, I mean, we'd never heard that before, where you could have a band that was singing the Velvet Underground's Waiting for the Man on the same album as a song like I'll Be Your Mirror. It had been a long time since we'd heard a record where you could just let that needle follow the grooves for the whole record without lifting up the skip tracks and stuff. Every track on that record was stunning. Not only did we not want to lift the needle up, but if anybody would have tried, I think I might have killed them. Boulder Weekly. Even a little bit later in your career, on a song like Tumble Down, off their fourth studio album, Honey's Dead, which is one of your catchiest songs, there's still that moment where the track breaks into that Einstürzende Neubauten sample from their 1981 track, Tans Devil. 
It's such a left-field choice, but somehow it still totally makes sense within the context of your music. Jim Reed. Yeah, well, that's good you noticed these things. Boulder Weekly. Moving up in the years, on your last album, Damage and Joy, it was thrilling to hear that you very much still have that magic. Were you worried at all that the spark wouldn't still be there after being away from recording with your brother for so long? Jim Reed. Worried only in as much as it had been a while since we were actually in a recording studio. We weren't worried about the songs. We felt pretty good about that. But yeah, it had been a long, long time since we'd actually made an album. So we were a bit nervous about that, and how things might have changed, and whether we'd be able to do it. To just knuckle down to it and get on with it. But the previous album we made was Monkey, released in 1998, and it just about killed us. So the idea of going into a recording studio for months on end, with just me and William cooped up in a small confined space for that length of time, I was worried. I wasn't sure whether it was going to take us right back to where we left off in the 90s, and we were going to be throwing things at each other. But it didn't go that way. It went quite well, and we just kind of got down to the business that we were there to do. There were no screaming matches, there were no sharp implements drawn. We got on quite well. Record was made. Nobody died. Boulder Weekly. I know COVID threw everyone's plans for a loop, and this is your first time back in the States since before the pandemic. Were you able to work on any new music during that time period, or did everything kind of come to a halt? I know you were working on some stuff beforehand. Jim Reed. Yeah, we started a new record just before COVID. And then it crashed to a halt. Then we went back into the studio last October, or something like that, for a few weeks. We did a bit of work then, and now we're going to go back in any time now and pick up from where we left off. Boulder Weekly. So what's your plan for 2023? Jim Reed. Yeah, we're hoping to have the record done and dusted by the end of this year and released next year. Boulder Weekly. Damage and Joy was the first album you made with an outside producer, correct? Jim Reed. Yeah, yeah. Boulder Weekly. Are you working with somebody this time? Or have you gone back to producing yourselves? Jim Reed. It's been just us for this record so far, but I don't know. I'm not totally against the idea of using a producer, but the trouble is, it's hard to find anybody that fits. A producer is like a temporary member of the band, you know what I mean? It's someone making creative decisions that can do something you can't. The reason we've never had a producer before is not because we were absolutely against the idea. It's just that we couldn't find anybody who seemed to fit, seemed to say the right things, and seemed to get the band. I'm not against the idea of using a producer in the future, but with this record so far, it's just been me and William. Boulder Weekly. And what can people expect from this tour? Jim Reed. It's going to be just a bit of a mixed bag from things from all periods of the Mary Chain. There won't be any new stuff, because it's too soon to do that, I think. So it'll be stuff where all albums are represented. So if you like our records, you should like our show. Boulder Weekly. What's it been like to enter back into the world of touring? 
Jim Reed. Obviously, things have changed since COVID arrived on the scene. It's much scarier now, because you organize this big tour, and then on day one, somebody gets COVID and the whole fucking tour is cancelled. So it makes it much more difficult to do these things, and I worry about how it's all going to go in the future, because we've gotten away with it so far. We did a Darklands, the band's second album, tour last year, and it was a bunch of band and crew on a tour bus going through Europe. And I was convinced that after a week, somebody would get it. None of us did, so that was amazing. And then, on the return, two of the crew tested positive, so we just made it. We played several festivals this year, and managed. We've all gotten it in the band. Everybody's had it now. But luckily, it was like when you got back, and you found out you had COVID. So it's not really totally fucked us up yet. But I get the feeling that it will at some point in the future. Boulder Weekly. How long are you going to be out in the U.S. this time? Jim Reed. It's a short trip. I think it's about a week or something like that. I'm the worst person to ask. I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't. People say, oh right, your tour, where are you going? People don't believe me, but I just prefer it that way. It makes me nervous when I start to think of all the things I need to do and all the places I need to go. It's much better if somebody just taps me on the shoulder the day before and says, Oh, you're off to America tomorrow. Boulder Weekly Your music has popped up in iconic ways in the past in film and TV. From Just Like Honey being used in a very important scene in Lost in Translation, to Snake Driver from The Crow soundtrack. And I've been watching the new Dahmer series on Netflix, and it uses head-on in one episode. I just wondered how you feel. Jim Reed. Yeah, I heard about that. I didn't know about that. Somebody sent me a text saying they just watched a movie and there was a Mary Chain song. But anyway, sorry. Boulder Weekly. Oh no, it caught me by surprise when I heard it. I just wondered how you feel about these songs of yours being used within the context of someone else's creative vision. Jim Reed. I really don't mind. I mean, obviously, it depends on what the project is. We were around in these time periods, so why shouldn't our music be included in stories about things that happened at these periods? I like it. I like the idea that it spreads the word of Mary Chain. I guess maybe the Jeffrey Dahmer one is perhaps a bit inappropriate to look at it that way, but I think we did so well out of things like Lost in Translation. We made so many new fans because of that song being in that movie, so what's to complain about, really? Boulder Weekly. I would imagine that for a lot of people, that was their introduction to you, a younger generation of fans. Jim Reed. I seriously think it was. I think a lot of people discovered the Mary Chain from the inclusion of Just Like Honey in that movie. Boulder Weekly. For me, it was catching a couple of your videos on the old MTV show 120 Minutes. And at the time, I wasn't supposed to be watching MTV according to my parents, but I would sneak it in. I know there are a lot of apocryphal stories of how intense and occasionally dangerous your early shows were. But you evolved out of that reputation. I wondered if you ever missed that sense of danger. Is that something that is better off left in the rearview mirror? Jim Reed. I think it's probably best left behind. 
At the time, it seemed exciting. I didn't know what to make of it. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? And at the end of it, I just thought, somebody is going to get killed if it goes on like this. And I thought, it's a bad thing. But at the same time, you sort of think, well, there's not that many bands who would go out on stage and get that kind of a reaction. So in a weird way, I thought it was quite exciting that the violence did get a little bit out of control. And it did seem like somebody was going to actually get seriously hurt. If it would have been one of the band, it would have been like, fuck it, you know? We were asking for it, some people would say. But if it was someone in the audience, then that would have been difficult for us to live with. So we tried to kind of nip it in the bud. We went away for six months, didn't play any shows, and just laid low and hoped that when we came back, the whole shit show would have been over and done. And it was. Boulder Weekly. There was a big shift in your sound from Psycho Candy to Darklands, but I've always thought it was impressive how you were able to shift the tone of your songs from album to album, but still retain the essence of the Jesus and Mary chain. You had such an iconic first album, but then there was the pressure to follow that up. But I hope this is okay for me to say, I think I probably listen to Darklands more now. Jim Reed. I hear that so, so much. That was the reason why we actually did that Darklands tour. We did a Psycho Candy tour, and we sort of thought that that would be it. That's the record that people want to hear. But so many people came up to us on that tour and said, you've got to do Darklands. It's my favorite record. And so we thought, fuck it, why not? Why don't we do it? Yeah, it's strange that you say it, but there was a lot of pressure at that time. We'd recorded Psycho Candy, and it seemed like there was a whole bunch of people out there who just wanted Psycho Candy Mark II. And there was another bunch of people who were saying, you should just split up. You should go away now, because you're just going to blow it. You can't follow that record up. It was terrifying. We didn't know what to do. And then we just realized that the only thing you can do is make the record that you want to hear. As soon as you start making records for other people, you're fucked. That's just a fact. It's all about making records that you want to hear yourself. And if you're lucky, other people get that too. If you start making records for an audience, then that's it. That's the end. Boulder Weekly. Do you have a particular view of the state of music in general right now, or rock and roll in particular? Jim Reed. People always ask me this, and I never know what to say because I'm old. I don't listen to teenage rockers now. I've got thousands and thousands of albums to listen to. And whenever I do dip my toe in the water and think, right, what's going on here? All I hear is bands that sound like bands I've already heard. I hear a band, and it sounds like Joy Division. Or I'll hear a band that sounds like Echo and the Bunnymen. Or the Cocktoo Twins. Or My Bloody Valentine. And I think, well, I'd rather just listen to the Cocteaus and the Valentines. I'm not putting anybody down. And I'm sure that when the Mary Chain came out, there were old dudes going, oh, fuck it. It's the Velvet Underground. Music is a cycle, and that's the way it works. There's a new generation, and they pick the best bits of the old generation. And that's what we did, and that's what kids are doing now. But if you're around long enough, you've heard the whole cycle, and there's nothing new to add. 
I really believe that. It's all borrowed stuff. And if you sort of tune in long enough, you've heard every single bit of it. And there's not really that much that I hear that I haven't heard before when I listen to new music. I'm talking about rock music. But rock music as an art form, I think, is pretty much terminally ill. It's not going to be around for much longer. Fast forward another 10, 20 years, rock music's going to be like what jazz music is today. There's going to be a bunch of enthusiasts that are into it, but it's going to be a much smaller affair. It's going to be people playing it in smoky little clubs. The idea of the rock show in a stadium, those days are numbered. Boulder Weekly. It makes me wonder if it's even still possible for a band to make an impact like the Jesus and Mary chain did in the mid-80s. Jim Reed. Well, I mean, probably not in rock music anymore. But I think probably in things like rap music or whatever. I've got teenage daughters, and my 19-year-old daughter has just gone off to university. And when we drive around, she plays me all this drum and bass and drill music and stuff like that. And at first I'm like, fuck, this is awful. But on repetition I'm thinking, this is kind of punky, you know? The attitude in how this music is made is very, very similar to how people made punk records in 1977. It's very kind of gritty and like, fuck you and DIY. And so the attitude that I love, the kind of music that I love, is still out there. But it's just morphed into something else. And rock is just sort of disappearing up its own arse, I think. On the Bill, 107.9 KBPI presents The Jesus and Mary Chain, 7 p.m. Sunday, October 23rd, Paramount Theatre, 1621 Glenarm Place, Denver. Fast Times Local author discusses the oldest cure in the world, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting, ahead of Boulder Bookstore Reading, by Nick Hutchinson. Twelve years ago, Steve Hendricks was looking for a way to shed some unwanted pounds. The former politico-turned-journalist was also seeking something that could boost his overall health. After contemplating a calorie-restricted diet, Hendricks decided to try fasting. By not eating at all for 20 days, the writer discovered an age-old means by which he could lose weight and improve his general health. In his new book, The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting, which grew out of a magazine story he wrote for Harper's about his experience, Hendricks examines the history and benefits of the practice. The 52-year-old Boulderite will discuss his work during an October 27th reading at the Boulder Bookstore. Studies have shown that caloric restriction leads to extended lifespans and better health in virtually every lab animal that has ever been tested, Hendricks explains. It seems to have similar results in humans, though it's really hard to eat less than you need to eat each day, because you end up with a constant gnaw of hunger. As I was contemplating just cutting back on calories, I came across counts that suggested that I could get many of the same benefits from a fast. Fasting is easier than just reducing calories, because you aren't dogged by hunger all the time. Ironically, it's easier to eat nothing than just a little. The author, who lives in the former home of the poet Allen Ginsberg in Boulder's Whittier neighborhood, 
says he was able to strip off about 30 pounds in the course of his extended fast, while simultaneously improving his overall sense of well-being. I lost the weight and learned an awful lot about the topic and the process, he says. Research shows us that prolonged fasts provide all kinds of health benefits. When we go from our normal fed metabolism to a fasted metabolism, we switch on a bunch of repair mechanisms that can prevent us from getting diseases we might yet contract, and in some cases, even reverse diseases that we do have. Prepared by Evolution Hendricks says fasting has brought many welcome changes in his life, but he counsels those who want to try it to do their homework first. The longest fast on record is 382 days, by a Scotsman who weighed 456 pounds and wanted to get down to 180 pounds, which he did by surviving on just water for that long, he says. The caveat to this is that doctors strongly recommend that if you do a prolonged fast, that you should do it under the supervision of a doctor who knows about fasting. According to Hendricks, there is a lack of consensus in the medical community when it comes to the topic, but those who work in the field say fasts as long as seven days are generally safe for people in good health who aren't taking medication. Some doctors point out that for people who have rare conditions, such as those who aren't physically able to burn their own fat for fuel, or those who have trouble processing the breakdown products that occur during a fast, it can be dangerous, he says. Those disorders are rare, but they exist. But if you're not underweight and you're in good health, you could probably fast safely for weeks. The prospect of not eating for a long period is daunting for most people. Yet, because of the benefits he describes in his book, Hendricks continues to embrace the practice of intermittent fasting in his day-to-day -day life, as well as during week-long fasts once or twice per year. One of the biggest expenditures of energy that our body makes is from digesting our food and then processing the nutrients from that food, he says. When we give our system a break from that process, we have been prepared by evolution to take advantage of that to make repairs in virtually every single cell in the body. During fasting, we're able to make deep repairs. So when people ask me if they should fast, the answer is that they already do. You fast when you stop eating at night and don't eat again until the morning. The question is, since we're all fasting anyway, wouldn't we be healthier if we extended that window? The answer is emphatically yes. Hendricks says fasting to lose weight is effective, but people have to diet accordingly afterwards to keep the weight off. He also points out that drinking water is critical while doing zero-calorie fasting a half to a full gallon per day at least, and that modified fasts, during which one drinks about 250 calories of vegetable broth per day, are also effective. You want to keep really hydrated while fasting, because we usually take in a lot of our water through our diet, and you have to make up for that water that you aren't getting from your food, says Hendricks, who is five foot nine and weighs about 140 pounds. But if you have sufficient fat stores, you can fast until your fat nearly runs out. On the Shelf, Boulder Bookstore presents Steve Hendricks, The Oldest Cure in the World, 6.30pm, Thursday, October 27th, Boulder Bookstore, 1107 Pearl Street. Once in a Lifetime
DCPA's world premiere, Theater of the Mind, is a surreal, science-driven trip through the brain of David Byrne by Tony Tresca. When you think of Denver, what do you think of? The Denver Center for the Performing Arts, DCPA, exhilarating experience inside the mind of former Talking Heads frontman David Byrne makes a strong argument that you should think about immersive theater. As an usher explains during the pre-show announcement speech, theater of the mind can't be experienced in Las Vegas, New York, or Los Angeles. The decision to premiere the much-anticipated work exclusively here on the Front Range is a remarkable show of strength for Colorado's thriving and expanding theater scene. Theater of the Mind was co-created by Academy, Grammy, and Tony-winning artist Byrne and writer Mala Gaunkar. The piece is set at the funeral of the world-renowned musician, who isn't really Byrne, but a rotating series of actors depending on what time slot you sign up for, donning his mantle in an elegant white suit. This person acts as your guide through key moments in Byrne's life. Inspired by historical and current neuroscience research, your guide takes you on a 75-minute journey across an intricate, mesmerizing, and surreal 15,000-foot warehouse installation. Side effects may include a distrust of your own senses, a disorientation of self, and a mild to severely good time, according to a cheeky warning on the Theater of the Mind website. This one-of-a-kind theatrical project, running at DCPA's York Street Yards through December 18th, achieves all of this and more through an immersive experience that is both profoundly human and technologically innovative. Director Andrew Scoville, who specializes in hybrid genre theater, crafts a captivating journey that defies expectations and demands attention. Although you never know where the guide will take you, Neil Patel's scenic design never fails to impress. Each door opens to reveal a masterfully crafted room, filled to the brim with set dressings, specifically designed to immerse you inside Burns' memories and spur your reflection on your own. One of the most magical parts of the experience comes from watching grown adults exuberantly participate in elaborate science experiments together. The 16-person audience is shown an extraordinary scientific phenomenon in each of the rooms that calls common understandings of reality into question and demonstrates that our subjectivity is what makes us human. It is energizing to become immersed in an experience that encourages you to appreciate each attendee's unique perspective. Theater of the mind is best undertaken with as little information as possible. Rather than spoil the fun or reveal the story's emotional beats, just trust me and go grab your tickets to this show now. Given the small audience size for each performance, you might need all the time you can get to secure your place. Availability is fixed, and tickets are going fast. On Stage, Theater of the Mind, various times through December 18th, York Street Yards, 3887 Steel Street, Suite 1221, Denver. Southern Gothic. Casey Lemon's spellbinding 1997 debut, Eve's Bayou, joins the Criterion Collection by Michael J. Casey. 
Memory is the selection of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. Each image is like a thread, each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. And the tapestry tells a story, and the story is our past. So opens and closes Eve's Bayou, filmmaker Casey Lemon's evocative exploration of the chasms spanning truth and perception. The words come courtesy of Eve, Tamara Tooney in voiceover, Journey Smollett on the screen. The Eve we see is ten, but the Eve narrating is older and perhaps wiser. She might even know the truth behind what happened the summer she killed her father. Set in 1962, Louisiana, Eve's Bayou unfolds like a ghost story, with past deeds haunting several characters. There's Moselle, Debbie Morgan, Eve's aunt, who has buried three husbands, while Eve's mother, Roz, Lynn Whitfield, tries to hold on to hers. He is Lewis, Samuel L. Jackson, the town doctor, and his specialty is making house calls. Everyone seems to know what Lewis is up to, but that doesn't stop anyone from loving him, particularly his two daughters, Cicely, Megan Good, and Eve. The whole cast is solid, including Diane Carroll as the local fortune teller, but the movie belongs to Eve, a headstrong girl in the Scout Finch vein who wants to understand why the world of adults is so very different from hers. Lemons and cinematographer Amy Vincent render these moments in stories and phantom images appearing in mirrors. In one, Moselle tells Eve how she lost the husband who loved her most. In another, Eve and Cicely reconsider an event from second perspective. Was it really as bad as Eve thinks, or did she just misunderstand what she saw? The legendary movie producer Robert Evans had a line for moments like these. There are three sides to every story. My side, your side, and the truth. Newly restored and available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection, Eve's Bayou was Lemon's first outing as a writer-slash-director, and it's one of the most assured American debuts in the last four decades. From the swampy locations to Karen Wagner's sumptuous costuming, Eve's Bayou cast a spell over viewers, first through story, then through lament. The film provides space for these characters to express what they want and reflect on what they've lost, and what they've learned in between. In the movie's best scene, Mazel talks to Eve about what it all means. As she speaks, she sees her three deceased husbands emerge from the moss-draped canopy of the swamp. All I know is there must be a divine point to it all that's just over my head. And when we die, it will all come clear. We'll say, so that was the damn point. And sometimes I think there's no point at all, and that's the point. All I know is that most people's life is a great disappointment to them, and that no one leaves this earth without knowing terrible pain. And if there is no divine explanation at the end, well, that's sad. On screen, Eve's Bayou will be released on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection on October 25th. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly, and have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, 
please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.